uh, to Living Hope. Here at Living Hope, uh, we love Jesus, and we want to have a faith that is that really sees no task too daunting, no sacrifice too great, because we believe in an unlimited God. We want to continue our, our emphasis on the area of mission, and especially as we think about mission, this idea that God, that Jesus is worthy, that, uh, in fa- that truly there is no sacrifice um, there's no sacrifice too great uh, for, uh, for bringing the love of Jesus to a world that really needs him. And we, we want to be mindful that um, the, just in terms of, of, of um, dates, that the GO conference has been moved from October 20th to October 6th, so it's actually coming up really quick. And um, the theme of this year's conference is until the whole world knows, which actually fits into our continuing study of First Thessalonians. We want to change, uh, not the topic, but we change the graphic. And if you think about, until the whole world knows, it's not really a full sentence. I mean, if you read this, it's not a sentence, and I was thinking, I gotta make sure I get this right. It is a participle that modifies an action. And so basically, it, when you says, until the whole world knows, this is like describing, it modifies something. And it, what it is saying is it's indicating an end point that something must continue until this happens, until the whole world knows. It's also a participle that indicates destination, that this is where we're headed, that all the actions of the church, all the actions of our lives, the the movement of the kingdom of God is moving towards this one uh, destination until the whole world knows. And so this is what we'll be looking at as we're thinking about or as we're moving towards the GO conference, that indeed God is moving all of history towards this one goal, that the whole world will know Jesus and worship him as the true king and Lord over all creation. And then it asks the question, uh, what type of people should we be? What does it mean to be a distinctive community of Jesus in a world that desperately needs God's salvation. And so today we're going to be looking at uh, the idea of what does it mean to be light in darkness. And I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 4 verse 1. A little mix up there. So let's go ahead and let's stand in reverence for the word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 1. And it says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please the Lord just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gave his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that, indeed, is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we have instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent 
on no one. And so may the Lord bless the reading of his words. You may be seated. From this passage, we're going to look at the importance of brotherly love in the Jesus community. Now, as you look at this passage, there's several cues that point to what Paul is really talking about. In this verse, he says, how you ought to walk and please God. He also says in verse 3, he says, and this is the will of God for your sanctification, in verse 12, that you may walk properly before outsiders. And the emphasis of all these phrases is talking about how we conduct ourselves uh, in community together that Paul is calling the Thessalonians to foster a culture built around the truth of Scripture, the power of the Spirit, that's clearly visible to the world around us. As we learned before, the city of Thessalonica was extraordinarily hostile towards Jesus' followers. I mean, they violently kind of kicked Paul out. They uh, were persecuting the believers who were still in the city. And... um, but Paul is telling the Thessalonians, the Christians there, not to, to you know, hunker in and hide and hide your faith. And, and, and he doesn't say to fight or anything like that. He says that he wants to see a community that is so transformed by Jesus Christ that the world around, that even the city around, will have nothing to say. Uh, about these these ones who follow Jesus Christ, that they, in fact, will not even have nothing to say, but they'll turn to Jesus and receive him as Savior. In fact, if you look at this passage, there's actually um, kind of an interpretive challenge in this particular passage, because a lot of the commands that Paul gives, first of all, they're very diverse. There's a whole bunch of different commands he gives, and some of them are very general. They're kind of imprecise. And so we want to kind of draw on a broad category of what is being said here. In verse 11, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And I believe this is kind of what the passage is talking about, brotherly love. Now the word brotherly love comes from the Greek word Philadelphia, which is also where the eagles come from. Um, But the word literally means to be born of the same womb. So the idea is the sense of family loyalty uh, that that, that would characterize brothers and sisters, like physical brothers and sisters. Now, depending again on the type of relationship that you might have with your siblings, uh, this could bring up even some uh, painful memories or good memories or whatever. But one thing I think of when we think of sibling relationships is that sibling relationships are seen in the context of home, right? In the context of a family system. And within a family system, there are basically kind of expectations or rules. For example, as parents, uh, we as parents, we often set the rules for how our children are to behave towards one another in the house. And when they're young, we say things like share, we say be nice, you know, be gentle. When our children are older, we may give them more responsibilities to involve, you know, take care of each other, uh, watch out for your sister, uh, friends come and go, but, but family is, is always going to be family. And so <clears throat> these, there's a sense that, you know, we always say, well, as long as you're part of this family, you know, you're your brothers and sister, you're a brother and sister, you're sisters together. And your relationship, this is as parents, what we want you to do and what we want you to be, no matter how far apart you are, no matter what happens, no matter what arguments you may have, or no matter how, many different, how different you are, you are 
blood, and because we're family, this is how we want to really treat one another, wherever we go, whatever happens. And I believe the same is true in regards to the family of God. That in the family of God, there's also a family code, if we want to say, that things that God, our Father, says, hey, you guys are family. You're brought together through the blood of Jesus Christ. And here are the things, as we live in this family together, here are the, here's the code that we want to live by. Uh, no matter who we are, no matter whether we get along together, no matter what happens in our relationship as you know, the church develops and as things go, this is what God desires for us together as a family of God. And in 1 Thessalonians, we see a few important elements of that code. And the first one is actually uh, the call to moral purity. Now, you may say this is a very unusual starting point, but that's where Paul starts, and there's actually a connection here. In verse 4, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. Now, Paul speaks here about sexual purity and its importance not just to the individual, but to the Jesus community. And verse 3 makes it very clear that it is God's will that his people be holy, that we conform to the image of Christ, that we abstain from sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? It's the idea that Christians are to abstain from any and every form of sexual practice that lies outside of the will of God. And this can be things like adultery, premarital sex, extramarital sex, pornography, homosexuality, masturbation, and any other type of sexual practice that lies outside the boundaries of God's design for sexual intimacy. See, the Thessalonians, the Christians, they lived in a pagan environment, and the city actually was very uh, loose from a sexual standpoint. It was a, it was a bustling, kind of modern city where lots of people were coming in from all over the world, and they, were, uh, they, they had, uh, the, the main religion was a Greek religion, and part of that religion actually included things like prostitution, extramarital sex, actually was included in their acts of worship. It was part of their worship. And so Paul was saying, in this type of atmosphere and society, we as believers, as followers of Jesus, must remain pure. Now, it's really interesting because I did some research about the sexual climate in America, and I thought, okay, America must be kind of like Thessalonica, and, uh, you know, what is the sexual um, environment now in America? And I was actually surprised to find that, honestly, the research shows sexual activity is actually in a noticeable decline in the United States. The Washington Post reported that America is experiencing what they call a sex drought. The Atlantic, a reputable magazine, oh, don't laugh, this is true. This is the magazine. Uh, and, and the Atlantic is not like, you know, like you know, those things that you see on the, uh, in the grocery store. This is a, a reputable magazine that does reputable research. It says re they did a massive research study with the conclusion that America is actually experiencing a sexual recession in the country. 
the percentage of teens admitting to sexual intercourse has dropped from 54% to 40%. Now, again, keep in mind, this is people who admit that they're having sex. And, you know, it's kind of a cuts both ways. Because on the one hand, you'd say, okay, if you ask the question, some kids will say, well, I don't know if I want to actually say I'm having sex, so I'm going to say I'm not. Or some people may say, I don't want people to know that I'm not having sex, so I'm going to say I am. So it's kind of hard to really know the accuracy of this. But in a sense, at least when teens, when they're being asked, have you had sexual intercourse? 20 years ago, more than the majority of teens would say, yeah, I am. That this was something uh, that was normal, acceptable, and actually um, uh, admirable, admirable. But now it's actually 40%. It's actually below average. And, uh, you know, we don't know what that means or whatever. In fact, researchers are really puzzled because they're looking at the trends. And um, the researchers actually were expecting that in a more sexually open society that they were expecting a dramatic increase in sexual activity, but the numbers are actually showing the opposite, that it's going down. In the past decade, teen pregnancies have plummeted from one-third of what it was in 1990. Now again, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are having less sex, it may mean that people are having more safe sex, but it is meaning that teen pregnancies have plummeted, that there is a sense that, hey, sexual activity outside the marriage, when you're a teenager, this is something that is not good. This is something that we have to think about. Uh, uh, the rate of child sexual abuse has been on the decrease. And people, here's another thing that's very interesting. People in their 20s are two and a half times more likely to practice abstinence than in the previous generation. This again is a secular uh, study. This is not a Christian study, it's not a biased study. This is a study of you know, sexual sociologists who are trying to figure out why it is that the climate or why it is that the things are changing in our society. Now of course the secular sociologists are trying to find an explanation uh, for this marked very clear decrease in the United States, and they come up with a lot of different explanations ranging from the rise of the internet to increase economic pressure and anxiety, and one of the things they said to increase helicopter parenting, and those of you know what helicopter parenting is, uh, there's actually a movie that just came out about helicopter parents, you know, trying to keep their daughter from having sex and things like that, which again was a non-Christian movie, and um, they even said, and they even said it's possible that there are biological effects of the plastics in the food that we consume that may be affecting the sex drive. So again, there's lots of different explanations. People are trying to find ways in which, you know, why is it that, that, that young people, especially young people, they say especially young men from the ages of, of 19 to 30 are not as sexually active anymore. Uh, and they really can't come up with uh, the reason why. But they just say they know that it's on the decline. Now, Lest we get lulled into a sense of moral slackness, the study also showed that there is a marked increase in pornography and the media and culture, that the sex is still a sex-saturated culture. But the good news is that we can make a difference. Things can change. Even secular culture is beginning to realize that free sex has not led to greater happiness. In fact, in the Atlantic, the, the article that they mentioned, they said that the data seems to show uh, 
that sex within marriage leads to greater happiness. And I feel like this just reinforces the idea that God's original intent for sexual intimacy <clears throat> is designed to be experienced and enjoyed exclusively within the context of marriage. That this is a call to us as believers that we say we're not surprised. This is not news to us that this is, this is the truth of God. This is how he created sex to be. And that when we look at the world and the world we think that, oh, you know, everybody's out having more sex and it's getting worse and everybody's having, or, or people say, oh, it's more fun or they're having more, it's better, you know. Um, even the statistics are showing to say, hey, you know, um, moral purity is actually good. I mean, who would think that our world would say that? But that's what's being said now. Moral purity is good. For those of you who are students, who are teenagers, who are in high school and stuff, moral purity is good. For those of us who are single, for those who are married, all one of us, Moral purity is good. You don't care what's shown on TV or what's being shown in the media. Moral purity is good. God's word is correct. God's word is truth. This is the call to us now more than ever that each one of us know how to control our body in holiness and honor. And Paul quickly moves to the, from the personal to the communal aspect when he says in verse 6, no one, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. What does this matter? This matter, again, is sexual purity. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And it's interesting here, it says no one transgress and wrong his brother. That somehow in some way that this is an actual, there is a, a communal, interrelational aspect to the idea of moral purity. Uh, the Lord is an avenger. And again, this is not the avengers like it's really popular being the avengers. This is an avenger like God will bring about uh, justice, he will bring about uh, the consequences of sin. Proverbs chapter 6, um, this is a verse when I was in college, um, this is a verse that I always thought about because uh, as a young man and thinking about living again in a sexually saturated society, this was the verse that I often just continue to read and, and really memorize. Uh, I did an NIV version, but this is the, uh, the ESV version. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? He who commits adultery destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and disgrace will, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. And for me, again, as a young person, even thinking about it now, this is a powerful statement. In fact, in the NIV, when I was growing up, it was can a, can a man put hot coals in his lap and not be burned? And I just kept thinking of that image that can I really, you know, go to, when I go to a barbecue, can I take all that and dump it in my lap and say, hey, you know, this is no problem. I'm not going to have any problems with this. Or am I going to have scars and burning and go to the hospital and, and, and you know, that's what God says about sexual sin. Now, he talks about adultery, but again, that time I was single about sexual sin. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Now, you ever have scars, and then it's like it, it never goes away. And you look at that, and you say, thank God that uh, he saved me. But you look at that scar and go, wow, you know, the effect of, 
of what I did or what I could have happened to me, it's there to continue to remind me of how important this command is, uh, a purity. And, and, and so God is saying that he has something to say about um, these sins that, that we think are so private and so hidden. And yet Paul says that, that, that God is not only avenger, but there are communal consequences. He says, let no one transgress um, and wrong his brother in this matter. And, and some commentators will say, oh, it's because you're having uh, adulterous relationships within the community. But no, I believe this is more than that. What, what Paul is saying is that all forms of sexual, pure, of sexual impurity will take their toll on the spiritual community, even our most private sins should be seen as an offense against our brothers and sisters in Christ who are striving to live in holiness before God. That the impurity that we bring into our own lives and into our marriages through sexual immorality will have a destroying impact on the Jesus community itself. And so we're reminded as on God's call to mission that we're warned uh, that God is calling us to, to be moral, morally and sexually pure that our private battles can be a, become a public stumbling block to fulfilling God's call and mission for the church as a whole. So we take this warning and this command uh, very seriously that, that the first thing that is involved in, in terms of being light and being this community for Christ is that every single one of us uh, uh, grab hold of this call to be morally pure. The second element of brotherly love has to do with striving to be quiet. Verse 10 is what I call the introvert's theme verse. And this is a poster on my wall. No, this is a, when I think about this, I really identify with this, right? Don't have to talk to anyone, best day ever. Um, but this actually is um, not what Paul's talking about. Paul says, we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Now, the thing about this verse is that it presents kind of an interpretive challenge because it's really weird because it's not too, it's very different from the previous verses. And also, it just makes two quick statements without much elaboration or uh, explanation. So, what does it mean to live a quiet life and to mind your own affairs? And I always thought it means like shut up and mind your own business, right? It's kind of like, if you want to say, that's a, shut up and mind your own business. But actually, that's not what Paul is saying. The phrase, strive to be quiet, is, it, it's, it's a sense, it's an oxymoron, because it means to be ambitious in being satisfied. To be anxious to be still. To strive to not move. So the word quiet here means restfulness. It means undisturbed by the, the craziness that surrounds us circumstantially. Remember, the Thessalonians were living in a place where, um, where just all sorts of things were going on around them. So much pressure. You know, some Bible scholars say, oh, this verse is talking about the socio-political point that we should not, as Christians, be wrapped up in worldly conflicts or political, you know, political issues and things like that. We should be focused on the gospel. And as much as I might agree with this, that's not what Paul's speaking about here. Paul's speaking about the deep spiritual life a life of Christian virtue, 
peace, tranquility, and security that remains unmoved by the turmoil of the world. That this spiritual tranquility was to characterize not just them as individuals, but as a whole community. Because the, remember, these were Christians. They had to go out in the marketplace and they would face ridicule, persecution. People would spit on them. People would say, you're not allowed to buy here uh, because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't want you here. All the problems that we're having is because of you. And uh, we hate your children. And uh, we hope you die. I mean, there's just all these things that they're experiencing. And Paul's saying, in this storm of all these things going on around you, I want you to exemplify this community of peace that does not react violently to the pressure around them. I want you to be cool. And when I was thinking of being cool, I was thinking of this picture of penguins. If you watched like uh, was it the March of the Penguins, which was quite a long time ago, they had like this storm, right? And these penguins, like there's just a storm around them. And they just huddle together and they're cool. Like these little penguins here, they're like enjoying life. But I bet if you like spread the picture out it's probably like this huge snowstorm which all of us would be like i hate this you know like i wish it would stop and they're like this is chill man we love this um and i feel like this is kind of a nice picture of the peace of christ to say that even in the storm together we're like hey this is peace we're cool they would respond he wanted them to respond to the hate around them with love. To the slurs and the, the you know, and, 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 and the, the, the insults to, to respond with compliments. To the, the curses, he wanted them to respond with blessing. Why? Because that's what Jesus would do. That, that's Jesus' way. This is the ethos of brotherly love. This is the community of Jesus that, that, that must be seen in Thessalonica, being cool. In our Young Parenting uh, Missional Community Group, which we just met just before this, you know, we, share, we were sharing last week, I think it was last week, we were saying it's a lot easier to be a good parent when you're not stressed out, right? Which is kind of hard because you're always stressed out. But at any rate, you know, because you read those books and they tell you all the things you're supposed to do and you go, yeah, I could do all those things if I'm not stressed out. But if I'm stressed out and everything's crazy, then, then everything's a crisis and I don't, I'm not able to react in the way that I'm supposed to react as a good and loving parent because I'm just going nuts here. But you know, this is not just true for parenting, it's also true for basically everything. I mean, if we're, if we're at peace with God, if we're entrusting our struggles and suffering to Him, then we will love on people more. We'll be ready to love on people more when we go out into the marketplace. When we know that our future is in God's hands, when, when, when we release the weight of responsibility from our shoulders and, and place our cares upon him because he cares for us, and then we go to work, we will be ready to be more tolerant about the interruptions and the inconveniences of life. And the things that our children just happen to get into that, that day that we weren't expecting. 
When we release control of our lives and admit to God that, that I don't have everything uh, uh, under control and everything doesn't have to be the way that I planned or the way that I wanted, then we're cool. Then when we go out and people hurt us and people make mistakes, we're more prepared to forgive. When people don't meet up to our expectations, we're, we're, we're more prepared to, to love and accept them no matter what. See, this is what it means to, to live a quiet life. That's what Paul is speaking of, to live a life that's entrusted into God's hands so that, that every week when we face the storm of this world, we can be cool. We, we, we can weather that storm and we can react and move with love. We can share, uh, we can be those penguins that smile, <laughs> that encourage, that look hopeful in this world that really is so dark sometimes. Now that's the second element. So we looked at being holy and pure. Second element, strive to be quiet. The third and final element of brotherly love, it says to be faithful in whatever God has given you. Again, the verse says to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Mind your own affairs. Again, a number of scholars had, uh, 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 biblical scholars think that this is talking about political quietism, and actually that's what led to a lot of this idea of political quietism. Throughout history, the church is supposed to refrain from political charge issues, but uh, the Thessalonians did not have problems being SJWs or things like that. I mean, they, they, that's not their issue. Their issue was how do we live, just live in this world that seems like it's like trying to destroy us. And so what, what they're saying, what Paul was saying to them is, is, is don't entangle yourselves in things that are distracting and unedifying and not really your concern. The idea of, you know, don't be a busybody, don't be a gossip, don't be a, a nosy neighbor. Instead, put the priority on caring for the responsibilities that, that God has placed before you each day. The things that he call that he will call you and me into account for for what we are responsible for. This involves our personal uh, spiritual life as we walk with God each day. Uh, our love for the brothers and sisters, for the people around us that we meet each day. Did I love on them? Did I act in a way that was Jesus to this person or that person? No matter who they were, no matter what circumstance or what context we've well, am I am I faithful to the the ministry of the gospel? Am I bringing this love of Jesus uh, to people around me? These are the the affairs that that these are minding our own affairs the things that God has given to us and not entangling ourselves in things that will take us away from that uh, work with your he says work with your hands this is again not a call to manual labor as it is to be saying again be busy about our own business don't be idle don't be a burden to others but rather um, just be called to be faithful and so again the sense this is the family code that God is calling us to live by because, again, we don't say, uh, you know, sometimes kids say, I didn't ask to be part of this family. Well, I, you know, that's not an issue, right? So what? <laughs> you know, of course, I didn't ask, well, you know, no, we did ask for you to be our children. Um, <laughs> but we say, hey, it doesn't matter what we ask for. It doesn't matter whether we like it. It doesn't matter, you know, if things change. Oh, well, things change. Oh, I don't care if things change. Still your brother. Still your sister. There's a family code. 
we're Christians together and we say, oh, well, things change because so-and-so. No, things don't change. Do you still, are you still uh, forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ? Yeah. Is they still, are they still forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ? Yeah. Okay, things didn't change then. You're still brothers and sisters together, right? And so God says, we're brothers and sisters together, family code, be pure, be holy. It's not just for you. It's for everyone around you. It's for all your brothers and sisters in Christ. Second, strive to be quiet. Live that deep spiritual life. Live that peace. And then finally, third, be faithful with what God has given you. Everyone, go to the things that God has called you to do, that he will hold you into account. These are the things that God calls of us. And as I was thinking about conclusion, you know, what's a good example of, of these uh, things? And I, I looked up online. Online is great. You find all these really wonderful things. Uh, I was looking up the 10 missionaries that everyone should know. I thought, oh, this is good. I mean, you know, I should know all these. And uh, among them were, of course, Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson, Amy Carmichael. And then there was this lesser-known name named Mary Slessor. And I'm like, huh, I've heard of her name, but I don't know anything about this Mary Slessor. And so I went to an article, kind of did some research on her. And I uh, just want to read you an excerpt. Uh, this came out of uh, kind of a, her biography. It's, a, um, it's a, uh, just a, a very abridged biography, and I just took little pieces out of it. But it gives you a feel for a person who really did have peace amid the storm. And so this is how it goes. It says, run, Ma, run. Whenever Ma, the white woman, heard these words, she knew that serious trouble was brewing. And so she hurried out of the house, down the path into the forest. And presently she found Etim, the oldest son and heir apparent of the chief Adam. He was lying unconscious under a tree which had fallen on him. For a fortnight she nursed him in his mother's house, but her efforts were in vain. Early one Sunday morning while she was resting in her own hut, the boy's life began to ebb. The news sent a spasm of terror throughout the district. For every violent death was attributed to witchcraft, and it was certain that a number of people would be put to death, taking the blame for the tree that had fallen on this royal child. And as soon as his life fled, the chief shouted, Sorcerers have killed my son, and they must die. Bring me the witch doctor. And forthwith, armed warriors marched through the village, seized a dozen men and women, brought them back, and loaded them with ch on chains and fastened them to posts in the yard. When Ma stubbornly pleaded on their behalf, the chief, in blazing passion, declared, These have caused my son's death, and they must die. Bowing her head, the Ma prayed for strength, for patience, and for love. And after several days of terrific strain, she finally won out. And for the first time in the entire district, a chief's grave had not been saturated with human blood. How was it that this lone white woman was able to endure this long and terrible ordeal? Well, let her give the answer. Had I not felt my Savior close beside me, I would have lost my reason. Mary Slessor was born in Aberdeen, Scotland, December 2nd, 1848, and she was known as the White Queen of Calabar. 
the region in the west coast of Africa, in a region in the west coast of Africa, actually Nigeria. C concerning this intrepid woman, J.H. Morrison pays tribute and says this, she is entitled to a place in the front ranks of the heroines of history. And if goodness to be counted an essential element of true greatness, if eminence be reckoned by love and self-sacrifice, by years of endurance and suffering, by a life of sustained heroism and purest devotion, it would be found difficult, if not impossible, to name her equal. Wherever, wherever Mary Slessor went, people were enthralled as they heard her tell in simple and a humble manner how she had endured hunger and thirst, was smitten by tropical fevers, faced cannibals brandishing loaded muskets, and faced down death a thousand times in her endeavor to bring redemption's story to Africa's perishing. And they were moved to tears as she told of the slave markets, of the human sacrifices, and of cannibalism. As a young girl, Mary had given her heart and life to Jesus. And due to the influence of stories told to her by her mother, she had given her life to missions. In 1874, the news of the death of David Livingston stirred a great wave of missionary enthusiasm. And on August 5, 1876, Mary Slessor sailed from Liverpool to Calabar. Seeing a large number of casks of alcohol being loaded with the ship as well, she exclaimed tearfully, scores of casks of rum, yet only one missionary to Africa. How can one frail and timid woman, what can I do confronted by such an appalling situation? Overwhelmed and depressed, she knelt and prayed. And she said, Lord, the task is impossible for me, but not for thee. Lead the way, and I will follow. Rising, she said, why should I fear? For I am, a royal, I am on a royal mission, and I am on the service of the king of kings. In a land of death, she brought the message of life. To souls in deepest sorrow, she brought the message of comfort and hope. To people dwelling in the habitations of cruelty, she spoke of love and kindness. To lives that are steeped in barbarism and sin she pointed to the redeeming Lord. From death in this world unto life in the next, says Jesus. If we be dead with Christ, we shall also live with him, says Paul. Eternal life compromises everything the heart can yearn for, says Mary Slessor. During an epidemic of smallpox, the people fled in terror of the dread disease, but Ma nursed and fed the forsaken victims, tenderly pointing them to Jesus, and without assistance, buried every single one who had died. The letter describing her experiences, she wrote this, it is not easy, but Christ is here, and so I am always satisfied and happy in his love. For the last four decades of her life, Mary Slessor suffered intermittent fevers from the malaria that she had contracted during her first station in Calabar. However, she never gave up her mission work to return permanently to Scotland. 
The fevers eventually weakened Slester to a point where she could no longer walk the long distances in the rainforest, and she had to be pushed along in a handcart. In early January 1915, in her remote station in Useikat-Uku, she suffered a particularly severe fever, and Mary Slessor died on January 13, 1915. Mary Slessor, the Queen of Calabar, was constrained to offer to her Lord her very best. And with gladness, she broke the alabaster jar of her consecrated life and gave the precious ointment to him for the redemption of many in Africa. Life is so grand and eternity is so real, she had said. And when she crossed over the river, she carried an armful of precious sheaves gathered amidst much toil and tribulation. And she received from the hand of her adored Lord a soul winner's crown of rejoicing. We're called to be holy and pure, to live with the peace of Christ, to faithfully care for the things that God has called you and me responsible towards. And for how long we ask, until the whole world knows. Let's pray together. Father, we 